So tomorrow, um, I officially reach a new plateau as an individual. Tomorrow, at some point, I'm going to go and I'm going to sign some documents. I'm going to write a check, and I'm going to walk away the proud owner of a minivan. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I joined Chris Leiter, who's been, like, he's the minivan hipster. He's been driving it since before they were cool. Um, but uh, I, I'm like dad legit now. Um, and, and while on one hand this car is just a car, on the other hand it's like, it's, it's a symbol and it's enabling a new life for me. Um, because now I get to carry all of my gear, um, which is really not much, but I get to carry all of my, well my gear is my pregnant wife. Um, and then my pregnant wife gets to carry her gear, um, which is like a fridge. And then my, my son gets to carry his gear and then unnamed child number two will eventually have its gear and I could I could carry like if you have you've got a large inflatable device I can carry it if you like I'll stow and go things like it ain't no thing we'll drop seats down you can roll down the side windows and it's super legit and, and I am all, all that is man driving my new funhouse on wheels which I never swore I would get but now I'm really excited um, to have it. And it's also symbolic, so it enables me to do that, but it's also symbolic of another thing. I'm no longer single Tyler driving a tiny uh, five-speed Jetta that no one else can fit in. My life now revolves around a family and fitting people in around me, and I care less about speed and looking cool as much as I do about sliding doors and built-in sunshades on the windows. Um, I was just bringing to Johnny about that today, because he, like the bourgeois he is, has like an aftermarket sunshade you have to put on your window. <laughs> New Yorkers, huh? Um, anyway, um, and where am I going with this? Well, it's, it's, it's that minivans are like Jesus in the least heretical way um, possible. Um, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. And then in the same way my vehicle both enables me and signifies a new station in life, we're going to see tonight that Jesus both enables and signifies a transition, a huge transition um, in Scripture, and he signifies that he is altogether different in and of himself. Um, and again, as we're going through the book of Mark, we're seeing that Mark is going to teach us a lot about Jesus not by writing about what Jesus spoke or taught, but by showing these little snippet stories of Jesus' life. And tonight we're going to see three points, again, through three stories. The first point, we're going to see the newness of Jesus. Second point, we're going to see Jesus as the new David. And third point, and where we're going to spend most of the time, is Jesus as the new Sabbath. But before we get um, to those things, I want to set the tone of our discussion with what is actually the very last verse um, that we look at today, a uh, verse that Logan just read for us. Um, Mark 3, verse 6 says this, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so here we see a, a pinnacle and a hinge of conflict um, in the story that we haven't seen in the book of Mark yet. And if we include last week's text that we looked at, we've now seen five stories back to back to back to back to back. I think that's five. Um, five stories of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders and officials at the time. And I want us to pay attention to today's interactions because we see people responding, really for the first time to Jesus, we see them responding not with oohs and ahs and not with large crowds following him, but we see people responding with anger and hatred towards Christ. 
There's something about the, this newness, this uniqueness about Jesus that we're going to look at, um, that it's not just neat, isolated, didactic stories about Jesus' life. It's not just cute things that God put in here. These stories are real historical things that were so offensive to some people that they ended up murdering somebody over this. These stories are acts of God ultimately leading his son to be murdered in our place on a cross. And so I want us to be mindful um, of that. But let's pray, first of all. Lord, we, um, the, the Bible does so much for us. It's your word. Um, it's a gift to us. Um, and the Bible's going to do a lot with us tonight. The Bible's going to say a lot to us tonight, Lord. So I pray that um, you are kind and merciful to us as we encounter this, Lord. I pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that we see Jesus in a way we've never seen Jesus before and that we respond rightly to him. Um, yeah, Lord, I pray that you, you lead us in worship tonight because you present a picture of Christ and a picture of yourself which is worthy of ultimate worship. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the first point um, we're going to look at tonight is the newness of Jesus. The newness of Jesus. And when I say new, I mean new. But when I say new, I also mean that he is unique. And really the battle, and you see this if you watch TV and see commercials or if you um, see marketing today. Do we have any marketing people in here? No, because no marketing people are saved. Um, so we, we see this battle for not just newness. Everybody pushes out a new product, but it's not enough to be new. You have to be unique in the reason you're new. And look at all the dialogue that's happened in the last month surrounding the new iPhones that have come out and Samsung. And, and Samsung iPhones are all promoting this new thing, and Samsung's like, dude, we've been doing this. You're not unique in that. And it's this battle for who has the, not the newest phone, but the most unique phone and the most unique features. And what we're going to see tonight in our text, we're going to see Jesus both as new, as something that's new, but also as something that is unique. And in all the history of the world, there has never been, nor will there ever be, an event or thing more unique than the person and man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only unique thing that has ever happened because nothing will ever rival who he is. And this is something Mark wants to illustrate um, in his uh, book tonight. And we're going to start by looking chapter 2, verse 18. And so we pick up, and again, there's a break from the stories we looked at last week, and some time has passed. Um, and we pick up in verse 18. Now... John's, that's John the Baptist, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, saying to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now this is um, one story in this five um, that's kind of jammed in the middle of the rest of these stories, and we actually don't see the Pharisees mentioned in this story. The Pharisees were the religious officials. They were, I guess, what you would call the pastors of the day, um, the priests of the day. Um, and so they, they, they're not involved here. What we see, and we don't have a description, but a group of people come to Jesus, and they're asking him why his disciples are not fasting. And for them, this is an honest question. We're going to see later that the Pharisees don't really ask honest questions to Jesus. They have ulterior motives. But these people come to Jesus and they ask an honest question. 
Because as we've seen in Mark, Jesus is becoming a really big religious figure, a larger-than-life religious leader. And they look around and they see two other religious groups. They see John the Baptist and they see the Pharisees, kind of the two other prominent religious groups. And they're like, well, John the Baptist and his disciples are fasting. The Pharisees and their disciples are fasting. Jesus, if you are a religious figure, shouldn't it make sense that you also have disciples who are currently fasting? So it's a legit question. Why, if all the other religious officials are doing this, if all the other religious followers are fasting, why is it that your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus answers them, verses 19 through 22. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. And there's a lot going on in what Jesus said. He's throwing all these different analogies, but what's the base of Jesus' answer? Jesus says this. He says, why do my disciples not fast? Because something new has come. Something different has come. And Jesus uses the example of a wedding feast, and he says, why don't people fast? Why, don't, why, why doesn't the bridal party fast at a wedding feast? I have reached the, the age where most of my friends are now all married off, except for my friends in here, I guess. Um, you're all my friends. So my lame friends are all married off. Um, and I've been to a lot of weddings in the last few years. And I love weddings because there's copious amounts of food. Like no one goes to a wedding unless you're that person who decides to go and take eight hours of pictures after your wedding and no one's allowed to eat until you get back. You are not going to be that person. Consider yourself warned now. Um, but no one fasts at weddings, okay? Why? It's a celebration. People are happy. There's feasting. There's festivities. And Jesus says, the groom is here, so we eat. One day the groom will not be here. One day I will not be here. But while the groom is here, we celebrate and we eat. Now the weight of this analogy is huge. And it's a little different for us because when we look in the New Testament, we went through Ephesians last year, and in Ephesians 5, um, we see Paul writing to husbands, and he say, says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then a little later on, he quotes Genesis, the first institution of marriage where he says, man um, shall leave his father and mother and join his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says this. He says, what does he say? He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm telling you, it refers to Christ and the church. And so in various times throughout the New Testament, we see this analogy that Jesus is the husband of the church. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to gather his wife and bring her to himself so that they can live in marriage, in perfect relationship. For modern Christians, this analogy isn't really earth-shaking. But for the original audience, this, this is huge. This is a, a, an enormous weight of what Jesus just said. It's not simply an illustration he's using. Jesus is calling himself a bridegroom. Jesus is calling himself a husband. Now, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of writings. There are some books that are called prophetic books, and it records people who are speaking of things yet to come. 
And in those prophecies, we see that there will be a king who comes. So, so the Jews, the very people who are hearing this, are expecting a king to come. They see there's a healer who's going to come. They see there's a great teacher who's going to come. They see there's a deliverer and a savior who's going to come. But never once in the Old Testament do we see a prophecy that a groom or a husband is coming. We never see that. Why? Well, for those of you um, who were at Sovereign Hope this summer, we went through the book of Hosea. And Hosea is a prophetic book, and there's a driving theme in the book of Hosea. And look at what God himself says to his people in Hosea 2, verses 19 through 20. And I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, and I betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Why is it that there's no prophecy of a husband? Because God is the husband. Because this husband isn't a new thing. God has said all along to his people, I am your husband. And that was why in Hosea we see this language of adultery. Israel has forsaken her husband. And you see here, there's never a prophecy about someone coming as an ultimate husband because God is the husband. God relates to his people like a husband relates to his wife. So when Jesus here is calling himself a bridegroom, he's not simply making an illustration proclaiming that the, the groom has finally come. He's making an illustration saying that God has come. God has come. God is here. The bridegroom is with his bride rejoice. God had come. Something new had come. Something which had never happened was in the midst of these people. And so it wasn't a time of fasting, but it was a time of feasting and celebrating the groom who had come for the church. Jesus is not like everyone else. He's something totally different from the disciples of John. He's something totally different from the disciples of the Pharisees. And like Paul or Mark uses these, Jesus uses these examples of, of a patch that's unshrunk. And when you put it, like you put something in the dryer and it shrinks, if it's an unshrunk, shrunk, unshrunk cloth, it will tear the clothes. He uses the example of new wineskin. Wine ferments and it actually expands. And so if you put new wine in old wineskins, the wineskins will burst and Jesus is basically saying here that I am a totally new paradigm. I am something the world has never seen before. Jesus sets himself apart from every strain of religion and philosophy the world has ever known. You see, in today's world, Jesus gets crammed into just about every belief. People like Jesus. They do. What people don't like is the idea that Jesus had to die for our sins. Because that means we're sinful. And so people like Jesus, and Jesus gets crammed into just about every system of belief. He gets molded to fit our perceptions and our desires. Well, I don't think Jesus would do that. I don't think Jesus would say that. But Jesus just made it very clear that Jesus is his own definition. Jesus is the substance of our faith. Jesus defines himself. We don't define Jesus. Jesus defines us. Jesus is the best picture of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Nothing else in this world does what I do. Nothing else in this world is equivalent. What you need is not what you perceive. We can't perceive our need. What we need is Jesus who fits our need. We don't need what culture tells us. We don't need what your Owen, my two-year-old right now, um, he always says, Owen needs. Owen needs. And I'm like, Owen, 
and, and just little parenting things. Just, Owen, you don't need that. What you need is Jesus. And as cheesy as that sounds, there's nothing we need more than Jesus. And there's nothing we would have ever desired unless the bridegroom came to us and showed us that we needed him. And that's what we have a portrait of here. Now with this newness in mind, Mark continues the story, verses 23 um, through 26. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples, those dang disciples, not fasting and picking grain, began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So, we had a break from the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees are back in the landscape. Why? Because one thing we'll learn about Mark, the Pharisees are always there. We saw that last week. They're like creeping in through windows. They're like this disease that's following Jesus and annoying him and questioning him and trying to trap him. And they're walking and Jesus' guys are walking through a field and they you know, get the, the heads of grain and they do this and they get some seeds and they pop them in their mouth. And then the, the Pharisees are like, whoa, it's the Sabbath. Why are your disciples harvesting on the Sabbath? Why are they breaking the law on the Sabbath? And I want to come back to the Sabbath theme for a minute because I want to focus on something that helps establish that a little better, and that's that Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the new David. And we see here the Pharisees are, are leveling a charge against Jesus, saying he's broken a Jewish law, and Jesus answers this charge. We're going to come back to the Sabbath in a second. But how does Jesus answer this charge? He references a story in Scripture about David, a story in 1 Samuel 21. And in this story, um, David has been anointed. God has said, David's going to be my king of Israel. The only problem is, is that David is not currently king of Israel. And the bigger problem is that the current king of Israel heard that David was now anointed king of Israel. So David's on the run from this king who now wants to kill him. King Saul is chasing down David, and David is running through the wilderness and it just so happens he, he runs into a tabernacle, what would be the equivalent of a church today. And, and inside the tabernacle is what's called the bread of presence. And the bread of presence was this bread um, that was specific for the priests. And to be a priest, there are all these laws and rules that went into being a priest. You had to be from a certain tribe. You were set apart from the rest of the tribes of Israel. You had a specific bloodline in you. You had all these rituals for purification that would happen. You were totally set apart. And so this bread of the presence was specific for the set-apart people because God only dwells with holy people. And so the priests were holy because they were set apart. And that's why it was called the bread of the presence. The presence dwelled in the tabernacle where only the priests could be. And so the law was the only the priests could eat this bread. But David comes in, he's on the run, he's hungry, he's tired, he's got his band of men with him. And David, who's not a priest priest asks the priest of this tabernacle for some food. He says, he says, all we have is the bread of the presence. But the priest gave it to him. And he gave it to David to eat. Why? Because the priest realized that David was anointed by God to be king. 
that God had not only set apart the priest, but God had set apart David to be king. David would grow up to be a man after God's own heart. Outside of Jesus, we don't see anybody in the Bible who has an intimate relationship with God like David had. God allowed David to break rules. Why? Because David was unique. David was something in God's historic plan of redemption who played a huge role, and God was not going to let David starve and die because that wasn't God's plan. And see, the Pharisees knew this. And the Pharisees knew how important David was. They loved David. They grew up with David action figures and King David posters. They were the Jewish equivalent to like Michael Jordan fans right now, where like they'd be around sitting in their circle and like some Pharisee will be like, hey, how about, how about Prophet LeBron? And they're like, well, no, uh How many titles of man after God's own heart does he have? Not as many as David. And like they wouldn't consider anything else because David, David was the man. They knew David. They loved David. They wanted to be like David. They wanted to have relationships like David. They wanted to talk to God like David. Regardless of who came up, they were just hardened and adamant against it. And David was still better. But you see what Jesus just said to them? Jesus said to them, I'm able to break the law in the same way David did. Jesus was saying, and we see Jesus saying this in other places, that a new David has come. A new king, a new man after God's own heart a new ruler, a new hope, and not just new, but unique. Where David was a man after God's own heart, Jesus is God himself. Where David received an exception because he was blessed by God, Jesus is the exception because he is God. And so Jesus is saying, something greater is here. Someone greater than the greatest you've known has come. And now we can talk about this issue of the Sabbath. Jesus the new Sabbath. See, the issue at hand here um, is Jesus and the laws of Sabbath. And Sabbath is, like, I lose interest immediately when the word Sabbath starts coming. So if you start sleeping, I don't judge you. Um, but there's, there's something, and right, we're entering into this dialogue about the Sabbath, and we see this frustration with the Sabbath that even Jesus and his disciples have. So the Sabbath, we see, um, we see in the Old Testament, we see something prescribed in a couple of places called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is just a term which actually means the rest in Hebrew. Sabbat is the Hebrew word. And the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. And the Old Testament, which is the, the front half of your Bible, says that on the Sabbath you are to keep it holy and to refrain from work. Keep it holy and refrain from work. Now, because humans are like limit pressers and button pushers, we always like to be, well, what constitutes work? Like, what if I just do this? Is this work? And so the result of this was that on top of the biblical commandment not to work, the religious rulers got around, they're like, okay, what do we, how do we justify work? And so they started saying, well, you can only walk this amount of steps. You can only bake this amount of food. You can only um, be this generous. You can only do this. And they had ridiculous laws where if you exhausted your number of steps, you had to stop where you were and basically put up a tent for the night. But you were also limited as to what kind of tent you could put up so that you weren't putting up so much work. And, and there was just rule after rule after rule after rule. And it became a burden to just fulfill this one thing. Remember it, keep it holy, and refrain from work. And there was this, this huge weight that was put on the Sabbath. And here we see Jesus' disciples 
One of the Sabbath laws was you're not supposed to travel, which they're traveling. One of them was you're not supposed to harvest. And here we see harvesting. I'm not a farmer, and I know how to harvest this. You reach down, you grab some grain, you break off the chaff, and you pop it in your mouth. And they do that, and the Pharisees are livid because they've tra- Jesus has transgressed one of the Sabbath laws. Truly, no good teacher of the law, no good true religious authority would ever allow his followers to break such a moral code. So is Jesus actually breaking the law? Because Jesus is breaking the law, Jesus is sinning, and if Jesus is sinning, Jesus isn't God, and if Jesus isn't God, let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings. (laughs) We don't have any reason to be here. So what was really going on here? Was, Was the Sabbath really there to regulate diets and steps? What was the purpose of the Sabbath? So let's take a look. The first mention of the Sabbath is in Genesis 1, or Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so there we see, we don't actually see the term Sabbath because the Sabbath was based on this idea of rest. God rested from his creation. And this is important because what's happening at this point in Genesis? Genesis chapter 2. It's a perfect, sin-free world. And the Sabbath was a day where God labored for six days and on the seventh day, God rested. And what happened in that? God was with Adam and Eve. We had perfect relationship with God. We had ultimate rest in the presence of God, a day set apart not to work the fields, not to create, but to be in the presence of God in a perfect... I had a sleep test last night. That's why I've got like this weird-shaped tape hickey on my neck. No, see, see, we as humans, we wrestle after perfect rest. We will never have a perfect rest here on earth like Adam and Eve had with God that first week in the garden. Perfect rest, not because they slept well, but because they were with God himself. They rested well in the presence of the creator. But a page later, not even a page later in my book, like three, par- three paragraphs later, we sinned. We rebelled. We fell out of relationship with God and were kicked out of the garden and subsequently kicked out of relationship. Things changed in Genesis chapter 3. We no longer had perfect rest in the presence of God. And so Deuteronomy comes around and God is giving a law. And in Deuteronomy, we see the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment pertains to the Sabbath. And here we see a rehashing of Genesis chapter 2. And look at what it says, verses 13 through uh, 15. Uh, I'll start in verse 12. I'll pick up at verse 13. Though. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servants and your female servants may rest as well. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so those of you who have been in the Bible study we've had on campus, when we see a therefore, we cheesily ask what it's there for. What immediately precedes the therefore of the Sabbath? 
to remember the mighty acts of God in delivering us out of slavery in Egypt. You see, the Sabbath is not simply because we need the rest and God's like, you look tired, you should probably take a day off. The Sabbath is because we need to remember, speaking to the specific Israelites here in Deuteronomy, you need to remember that you were in slavery and God brought you back into relationship with him. God brought you back into rest. And then what did he do? He's like, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to bring you into a land where you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God and we're going to live happily ever after. That rest is here. That rest is in the promised land. But what happened? Man, we screw everything up. They reject God. They doubt God. They're like 30 steps out of Egypt and they're like, they're hungry. And God didn't give them like Fritos yet. And they're like, hey, 15 minutes ago, we had steak. He's like, yeah, but you were in slavery. They didn't get it but they didn't trust God's relationship. And so they weren't granted true rest in the promised land. And so the prophets pick up the dialogue on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath was originally with God. We had it in the garden and we lost it. Then God redeemed us from slavery, brought us out with a mighty hand and said, I'm bringing you into a new Sabbath. And we lost it. And the prophets pick it up. And in the very last chapter of Isaiah, It's one of the prophetic books. In the very last chapter, God is speaking of the end times, a new heavens and a new earth, which is yet to come. And this is what he said. Chapter 66, verse 23. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And so here we see bookending Sabbaths, a Sabbath which we saw at the time of creation, but there will be a Sabbath, a day of rest, which will come at the end of creation, which is signified by people worshiping God together in a way we have not yet worshipped. And up until this point, now fast forward to Mark, up until this point, it's the Pharisees who have been studying the law, the Pharisees who know the Old Testament, and they knew that God's perfect original rest was lost in the fall. They knew the second Sabbath, a day to keep holy. We didn't keep that. They knew then the third Sabbath, a new land for Israel, was lost through Israel's hardness of heart. And with that in mind, with that longing for that Sabbath rest, look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Jesus' term for himself. The Son of Man is Jesus as God. And Jesus says the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden on man. It wasn't meant to be rules for man. It wasn't meant to be regulations for man. It was meant to be the restoration of a perfect relationship with God. Sabbath is for man's good, not for man's detriment. Sabbath is for man's joy, not for man's burden. And then Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Who instituted the Sabbath? Hallmark? The party planning committee of the first century BC? God instituted the Sabbath. And Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is my Sabbath. And you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, more than simply, I have control over the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, I am the new Sabbath. I am ultimate rest. I am the restoration of relationship. I am Jesus, and I am the ultimate good for man. I am the ultimate restoration. I am the ultimate longing of your deepest desires. 
And I have come as something radically new. And I love this because Jesus preaches this in this passage in Mark, but then he shows it in Mark 3, 1 through 5. I want to read it first, and then we're going to go back um, and revisit it. And again, okay, again. So immediately after it says that, Mark is clipping away at what's going on. Why? Because what's happening here in this passage is immediately connected to what Jesus just said in the last passage. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether they would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. They said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them and turned to the Pharisees and said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And so here, this is Jesus not teaching through word, but teaching through action. And here we see Jesus coming into a synagogue, and he looks. Why? Because the Pharisees are looking to accuse him. Jesus knows what's going on. He sees the intention of the heart. He sees the doubt in the Pharisees. And so he's, he looks around the crowd. He sees a man with a shriveled hand, a hand that probably has been deformed and not working from birth. And he says, come here. Can you imagine the the nerves of this man, probably ashamed, probably hiding his hand, probably hiding his, in, his imperfection, ashamed of his handicap, nervously arises. He has no idea what's going on. This guy doesn't have the Bible, okay? He's not reading this with us. He's living it. And Jesus, this great religious teacher, calls him to stand up from where he's sitting among the masses and says, come here. And then Jesus turns towards the Pharisees his last words about being Lord of the Sabbath still fresh in his mind, and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? And they were silent. And see, our silence towards Jesus is often an answer. And in this case, we see that was true. The Pharisees' silence towards Jesus confirmed Jesus' um, doubt, and it says, Mark said that Jesus was angry and grieved at their hardness of heart. Why was Jesus grieved? Because they were numb to the new gospel that Jesus was here to bring. They saw salvation locked up in the rules and regulations of man. They saw performance and perception as the key to perfection. So much so, do you see what's going on? So much so that they would rather this man have a crippled hand his whole life rather than to have Jesus heal him on the Sabbath. They would have rather had this man live imperfect, ashamed, unable to do what normal people do because he can't be healed on the Sabbath. And they would have rather trapped Jesus in that than letting this man have the joy of healing. But Jesus, who's Lord of the Sabbath, fears no man-made rules. Because he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is set to do good to his people because Jesus alone knows what good his people need. And so Jesus confronts this man's worst fear. He's already called him up in front of people, and he says to this man, stretch out your hand. Thanks, Jesus. If I could, I would. 
For years I've had this shriveled hand. And you want me to stretch it out. Why? So that everyone can see I can't stretch out my hand? You can't heal on the Sabbath? You're just trying to mock me or trying to prove a point? And yet in faith, he stretches out his hand and it's completely restored. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, isn't bound by man-made rules, but he frees and heals as the God that he is. Now, immediately after this, the verse we opened with, immediately after this, the Pharisees went out and held counsel, not only against Jesus, but to destroy Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the enemy of man-made religion. He's the enemy of works-based salvation. He's not here to say that we should have regulations and rules set by man, but he's saying that we should be responding rightly to the person and work of Christ, that true worship is not bound by Christ, but true worship is freed by Christ. And the Pharisees hated that because it attacked their identity of having a religion in and of themselves of being able to sanctify themselves by being expert law keepers and expert church attenders and great friends and moral hosts and givers to charity. But Jesus says, I am the one who fulfills the Sabbath law. I am the one who brings perfect rest. And I love the subtlety of what Jesus said in verse 4. Look back at that. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. You see, in the first part, he's speaking about the man with the withered hand. Should I do good or should I do evil and not heal? I have the power to heal this man. It would be evil of me if me, being the one who has the power to do that, walks away and doesn't heal him. And it would be good for me who has the power to heal. He's talking about the man there. But who is he talking about when he says to save a life or kill? Jesus is talking about himself. He knew the hearts of the Pharisees. And he knew the moment he chose to exercise himself as Lord of the Sabbath, to exercise himself as the one who came to heal a sinful humanity, that he was nailing himself to a cross to heal what was broken. You see, it's only through Jesus' brokenness on the cross, it's only through our sinful hatred of Jesus that we have access to the healing of Jesus. And I want to close with this passage on Hebrews. Hebrews is called Hebrews, right? It's Jewish. It's written by people who are masters of the Old Testament law. They knew the Sabbath. And yet look at what they say in Hebrews 4, 6 through 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news of faith failed to enter because of disobedience, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, see another prophet, if this prophet had given them rest, God would not have spoken another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has enters God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so the author of Hebrews is reflecting on Christ and he's saying, dear brothers, the best Sabbath is yet to come. 
your greatest rest, your greatest restoration, your greatest relationship, your greatest future, your greatest hope, your greatest identity is not here on this world. So do not harden your hearts to the message of Jesus, but believe it in faith and enter into God's rest. Because what we saw in creation, which they referenced, was that God's desired creation didn't have a side effect of rest. It ended in rest. Our rest, church, is yet to come if we hope and trust in the Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who came to bring us into that rest. So when you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Praise God that Jesus is something new. Let's pray. Lord, you, you warn us to not have hard hearts, and yet you are also the God who softens hearts. And in this room, we have people probably from all over the spectrum of faith. We have people who have been raised in a Christian home and have served you and loved you their whole lives. We have people who might be new to this gospel, Lord, but you have the power for that whole spectrum to soften a heart because we can never worship you to the fullest of our ability until we are in that new Sabbath rest, that glorious time where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and every tear wiped away and every shriveled hand and bruised heart and and dead person rises to sing the beauty of Jesus who is Lord over the Sabbath. And so, Lord, we pray that we get a taste of that rest today. A rest in salvation and a hope for a future restoration yet to come. We love you, Lord. Praise in your name. Amen.